She's a waitress. Lives in Brussels. There's a rail ticket. Where are we? Oh, and about two kilometers from Georges. It's a village between Brussels and Namur. Exact distance. From Brussels, 30 kilometers. East or west? East. Who are you? Lady, I ask the questions, you give the answers. It's not my place to judge. Many others will die in the same way, not only her. Those are the consequences, unless you let me take her now. And I'm sorry, sister, but like it or not, that's the responsibility you have to accept. Martin here again. Thanks for tuning in to this, the second of our three exclusive new interviews with the principal cast members of Secret Army. This time Andy is in conversation with Juliet Hammond-Hill, who played Dutch evasion guide Natalie Chantron across all three series. Natalie moves from supporting player in the first series to Lifeline's principal guide from series two onwards. As brave as she was passionate, Natalie regularly found herself in life-threatening situations as she helped Allied airmen evade capture on their journey down the line. Juliet is the daughter of prolific TV director Peter Hammond, who Archive TV fans will be interested to know directed 19 episodes of The Avengers, as well as many armchair theatres and Tales of the Unexpected. She trained at the Weber Douglas Academy, and Natalie was one of Juliet's very first roles. After Secret Army, she played Madeleine Bray in the Royal Shakespeare Company's Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, while on television she was Pella, the telepath in the Blake 7 episode Power, and terrorist Irene Cole opposite her Secret Army co-star Stephen Yardley in Blood Money. She went on to play Emily opposite David Bowie in Baal, Miss Hawke in the educational school series Dark Towers, and Miranda Davenport in Only Fools and Horses, a character who dates and gets the better of Del Boy. Juliet has worked as a drama teacher since the 1990s and lives in the south of England. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Juliet Hammond, probably best known to all of you as Juliet Hammond Hill, who played Natalie Chantron in Secret Army. Juliet, fantastic that you can join me today. Thank you. Um, I would like to start by asking you, do you remember how you actually got the role of Natalie? Well, I do. I hadn't long been out of drama school, literally months. And feeling, you know, as actresses do when they've just left drama school, nobody knows me, nobody likes me, nobody will employ me. <laughs> but I sent a letter and a photograph to Jerry Glaster, the producer of Secret Army, latterly of Colditz fame. And he um, got me in almost instantly to my surprise. I think the photograph did it. I think I was so different to Jan and Angie physically. Mm. And I think that just the photograph and the way I spoke to him about my French um, education and stuff just sort of nailed it for him, really. And I went down after three interviews. I was offered the part. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. One interview being with John Brayson, who was the script editor. I had to read. That was my first reading. And I'm always quite good at sight reading. So I sight read, you know, to their satisfaction and then. Mm. was offered the part very soon after that. Yeah. And I remember you telling me before that there was a bit of a bit of envy around about you getting the part. Well, I think I remember people pointing at me in the in what we used to call the Acton Hilton, which was the BBC rehearsal rooms 
in Northampton. Uh, and in the canteens, be, I was got, got the sense and I was told that actresses were sort of nudging each other, saying she's the one that got the part. And I think it was mainly because I had absolutely no track record. I had no experience in television. It was my, only my second job from leaving drama school. So I think, yes, I, people were just not particularly charitable. <laughs> I mean, I think I was, in a way, Andy, I think I was destined to play her, really. So... I right. don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I believe that too. <laughs> so, yes. did the concept of Secret Army immediately grab you? Did the the setting appeal to you? Yes, I mean, I, I have a, a love of history, and I have a love of, of, of I mean, obviously, uh, because of when I was born in the fifties, a lot of my family uh, grew up in the war and were served in the war and involved in the war. So it was something that was very much part of my life growing up, you know, from family members. So yes, there is a for me it's odd because although it's a horrible, t- horrific time, in fact, World War Two, there's also a quality of romanticism around it that I think has been exploited a lot anyway in films and literature and I I could feel the double um, quality of that the horror of it and the drama of it but also the romantic quality of the war and people's relationships within that time mm, yeah so you've joined you've joined the series everyone else is starting at the same time though as well of course because it's, it's it's new did you have any nerves about working with some of the more established actors on the show well, my father was an actor, my mother was an actress, and my father was a director, and he was a working director during all of this time in television and film, and, and it, it, it was a life I knew. So I wasn't coming from drama school as a complete novice to the workings of television, because I'd obviously grown up alongside my father, who had been involved with television throughout my young life and my adult life. And so, in a way, though, I knew I was going in as the greenhorn, as it were, and, and I wasn't known, and nobody, and maybe people had friends who they'd wanted to play my role. That that all came up as well, you know. They had friends who went up for it and didn't get it, blah blah blah. I didn't have that, that sense of awe because I'd been around television all of my life, so I just, in a way, felt take me or leave me, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Knowing I was there and was there to do a job. Yeah. So how easy was it to become Natalie? Um, Was that a gradual process or was it immediate? And was there enough in the script to go on? Well, I could say straight away to your second question, Andy, that no, of course, there wasn't enough in the script. I mean, if you just read the script, you'd think, okay, there's nothing there, really. And and my role was really to report. I was constantly reporting incidents of fires or bridges being blown up or I can't remember but there was always reported speech I used to call it laughingly to myself you know there was very she was very scantily written and I just think I had I just my own qualities just came through very quickly I was very and I was aware that I got better as each series went on technically better in terms of, you know, camera use and how I worked in front of the camera and so on. But in terms of her quality, I, it just felt, she felt completely natural to me and she never at any point felt problematic or I didn't know what I was doing or I didn't understand her or I didn't feel I fitted into the period. She came very naturally to me. What's this? Vet's travelling case. I can see it's a vet's travelling case. She's been arrested. Dear God, no. Yvette? She was arrested in Saint-Lys. 
Where have they taken her? I don't know, Albert. I tried for two days to find out. You've known about this for two days? I haven't, Albert. I, I was trying to find out the airman is safe. To hell with the airman! Our concern is Yvette. Give her a chance, Albert. She's trying to tell you. Natalie feels more European than the other members of Lifeline. And you already just touched on your, your, your French education, which I didn't know about. So was Natalie's accent discussed? And I just wondered about your French heritage. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> um, she was never discussed. And, and the extraordinary thing is, Andy, is that, of course, she wasn't French. She wasn't Belgian. No. She was Dutch. Of course, and, yes. And Natalie was Dutch. Yes. If you remember Uncle yeah. um, Hans and, yes. and Lena, I think. Yeah. They were both Dutch, and they had the barge and so on. So and my looks were obviously more um, Nord Nordic than than French. Um, I, I, well, I, when I met Jerry, I just had my own voice. And, and, and again, it was almost organic that I created an accent. I was aware that my accent was different maybe to just the other members of the cast, but without being caricaturely French. You know, with Zizanzat and so on, I would never have done that. But it just came organically as a process. And um, my French education was nothing to do with my, my being French. It's just my mother sent me to a, a French lycée in London. And um, I suppose I just understood the continental way. And I think that's why she was very authentic, Natalie, because I was so not English in my upbringing. I, I was so much had that you know, that Northern European aspect to me through being around people for 10 years of, you know, in the French education system, but in London. So that accent was never discussed and no one said, oh, tone that down, you sound peculiar. I just got on with it and no one said anything, really. Yeah, that's amazing. That's like a jigsaw puzzle has fallen into place for me now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So do you remember how soon you felt that the series was working as a cast and that it was going to be a hit? No, I never, uh, I never felt any any of, of that, Andy. I, I the first series wasn't a tremendously easy experience for me. The fact that I was unknown, I had no track record, as it were. Um, a lot of the cast didn't really talk to me. Um, I didn't find it always that easy, and um, I didn't know whether it was going to be a hit. Uh, I thought, you know, well, wartime has been covered so much. And in fact, Jerry himself had covered a lot of, you know, the wartime experience when he was producing other programs. And I didn't know. I, I just got on with the role. And that sounds like a lot of actors talk like that, but it's true. I just did it. And I had no idea even if there'd be another series and whether I'd be invited to even be part of a second series. So I didn't have any sense of it, no. How useful was the rehearsal period before the studio recording? Oh, well, I suppose um, invaluable, really. We didn't have rehearsing so much on film. Uh, it was rehearsed record on film very much. You did maybe, and it wasn't really for you so much as for um, the, the lighting man or the, the design factors of, of filming. Uh, in the studio, obviously, there had to be more elements of it being for the actor. And... Uh, Yes, I think I just assumed because that's what you did in a play that that's what you did in the in, in studio for television acting. Um, yes, useful and necessary. Um, I don't know because we were all finding our way. I, I I remember series one not being again particularly happy. I mean, I never got any encouragement from any other of the actors, and I never, to my memory, got any direction from any of the directors. 
I'm sure I must have done. But I, t- I tended to think they came into their own more when they were on film. So when we were filming, I got more direction. But really just rehearsing in the rehearsal rooms for studio was just went through it, really. I don't remember it being very eventful. Mm. So I guess Natalie's standout episode in the first series... Um, um, you're, you're holed up in a, a windmill for some time with a South African evader called... Um, yes. Called East, Noel East, I think it was, played by Christopher Douglas. Do you have any memories yes. of that? And the... Well, it was... It was um, Christopher was, was wonderful, uh, and I thought he was very evocative and very good in the part. And it was my first real extensive filming. I'm going to say Vic Rotellis, and you yes. will probably know no, that's me, right. Andy. That's right. Um, and Vic was, um, shall we say, a bit gung-ho with me because I was young and, again, he was kind of throwing me in and saying, see what you could do and let's see if I like what you can do. And so he had no no thoughts about, oh, you're going to get very muddy, you're going to get very cold, this is going to be quite um, challenging. And, we did, again, I just got on with it handy. And I remember, I remember in the mud, because I was fully in the mud, I remember that the um, there was these uh, mud insects, like like leeches, but not. And they were. I, I remember them being very present in, <laughs> in in the in the scene. And um, yeah, so that was my main. Uh, and I remember thinking, this is this is good, and this felt passionate and right. And I thought Christopher was was wonderful, and it. And I remember the scenes leading up to that, which were probably studio-based. I yeah. remember the relationship we set up together, Christopher and I. I felt it was very authentic. And I felt that final scene, which obviously was done differently. I mean, it was done at a different time to the studio stuff. It was done before the studio stuff, I'm pretty sure. Um, it, it felt authentic. I mean, I was pleased with the result of it. It felt real. And I think it set Natalie up as somebody very passionate and brave and you know, courageous. I reckon I'll kill that bloke with the lock. <laughs> Maybe the other one, too. <laughs> that means I'm murderer. No. Some would say you were already that when you dropped your first bomb. I don't. It's war. It can't be helped. <laughs> this cut is very deep. Can you walk? No, I don't, I don't think so. Then I must fetch help. How old are you? Nineteen. What's your name? Please trust me. Stay here and don't move. I have to find you again when I bring the doctor and you could put us all in jeopardy if you just stumble about outside. You must trust me. Yeah, as a viewer, you start to take notice and you think, oh, oh, she's a character. She's an... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So some characters didn't go on to the second series for various reasons. Um, What are your memories of working with with Jan Francis as Lisa and Christopher Neem as Curtis? Well, I didn't really have any scenes with Jan, to my memory. I remember Jan had most of her scenes with Bernard and Angie, and obviously with the other characters that she was involved with as the, as the leading light mm. of the series, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, I had no scenes with, but I got on terribly well with Chris, and Chris was really my friend in series one. He, ah. he took me under his very broad shoulders <laughs> and um, and put his arm around me metaphorically and yeah. often literally and, you know, just was, he was there as a support and he had a wonderfully twinkly, 
warm face and smile, and he was always there, even if he didn't speak to me. I, I knew he was on my side. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really have very much to do with Jan at all. Um, but, but with Christopher, and again, not, not as a character, really anything, I don't remember. But I know he was very kind to me as a young actress coming into a big fold of established actors. Yeah. Mm. So in the second series, it kind, of, it kind of gets thinned out, or I like to see it as concentrating sort of on, on the best, in my opinion. But <laughs> Natalie gets more to do because Jan is left and she's sent on missions yes. more. And there's more screen time with, with Albert and Monique. Um, yes. I presume you were very pleased about this increased prominence. Well, I was very struck, Andy, that um, she had a lot more filming to do because obviously they were going to exploit my youth, my energy, and, and the authentic quality of it was the young girls who took the risks during the war. <clears throat> and obviously someone like Albert and Monique, to a lesser extent, were the ones doing the machinations behind the scenes and and the organizing. So I wasn't surprised that they exploited that quality. And I was glad they did because I felt that again added authenticity to the to the series. And um, I felt that this, the, the situation she's found herself in whilst um, on the road, as it were, and traveling with the airmen, again, they felt authentic in the main. And I felt I was able to imbue them with a sense of truth and and reality and consequence for, for everything that that she went through and they went through the young men that she herded through the the traumatic times so i yes i was pleased because it added for me authenticity to the series mm, yeah yeah so um yeah we get to meet some of natalie's family um aunt yeah. lena and uncle hans how was it to work with marianne and gunnar um i didn't have a lot to do with marianne again um uh, I don't remember there being a lot with Marianne, and I think she only appeared in. I, well, she died, didn't she? Yeah, she, there was an episode in the first. Did. There was an episode in the first series, very early on, in which you yes. meet them on the barge, and then the second series again. But then the next episode, she she is killed off. Yeah, she's killed by the Germans. Well, Gunnar, we were close to Andrew and I, particularly in series two, were close to him because he again was quite an unusual character. He was a foreign actor. I, I think, am I right to say he was German? Yes, that's right. Um, he was a foreign actor, so he again was lending something else to the to the to the series. Um, he was a, he's a warm man, and it was very tragic that he was involved in the demise of his wife, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and we um, we supported him as we could, you know, through that time. Um, we like I liked him. He was a he was a, an asset to the rehearsal and the filming process. And he, again, felt very authentic to me. You know, he felt very much like he was who he said he was yeah. within and, the show. And it's interesting that they choose to give Natalie almost more background than anyone else in terms of characters and and family. It's just It just struck me this time, thinking about questions for you, that, you know, we get, we get that and we don't get that for other characters so much. And it's odd because I, you probably don't know this, Andy, and I only know it because I have to really think about it. But did you know she was a university student? <laughs> you would get no sense yes. that Natalie was attending one course ever anywhere, yes. but she was actually a university student. Yes, yes. Well, we only know that because of Francois, I think, because they have a sort of, that's how they apparently met. Oh, well, yes, but that's never cited, is it? It's no, I, I don't think but... so, no. And he looks like a bit of a boffin with his the piece yes. he wore. 
Um, but but she is meant to be, um, I suppose that's her cover as much as anything. And I imagine she's come from Holland to study in Belgium as they have a simpatico culturally. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I don't know, because in many ways she was very underwritten and in many ways underexploited to what they could have said yeah. about her. I mean, there's no mention of her mother, her father, her siblings, yeah. even anywhere she was raised. I mean, we, the thing is, Andy, that Natalie never had what I would call normal conversations with anyone. <laughs> they were always <laughs> heightened about something that was going on within the line and, and, and about a task she was on. She never talked about, oh, I really liked, you know, sugar in my coffee. Or, <laughs> there was never any sense of her just being... So that the, the kind of challenge when I'm talking to you now, I'm realizing, was to make her real yeah. within this very heightened situation yeah. that she was an ordinary girl working undercover in, in Belgium doing this work. And yet there was, a very, there was nothing for me to go on. I, I just had to make her real but also keep her dramatic. But I, yeah. suppose, I suppose this plays into what really works about the character, is, it, is this sort of like the romantic ingenue character in the sense that um, she has all this heightened dialogue and it's all very dramatic and it kind of plays into that, although the practical reason for that is under it being underwritten. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I don't know if that's the quality, the clever quality of the writing or the, <laughs> or the clever quality of my playing. I yes. think it may be a fusion of the two, but yeah. I suppose, well I, well, I think actually if you're doing a series and you've got lots of leading actors and I was only one of eight or however many, in the, certainly in the early days, yeah. I suppose the writers can only give so much to each character and then they employ people to fill, to fill the, imaginatively that role. So that if they play the role well, then people watching will be knowing about them without knowing about them because they, they you know, again, provide a quality of realism and truth and authenticity that the audience can say, I believe in you. So, yeah. And I think that was, yeah. that's the job of the actor. I mean, I teach drama now, as you know, and I, I teach actors that when I teach acting as opposed to any other subject, I... I try to get them to really believe in the background and then it's up to the actor to provide that background, imaginatively in their heads, and then it translates to the screen. I think that was her skill, really, um, uh, Juliet, as in, and me, uh, in an underwritten part to be able to do that. Well, I hope I did that and I think I did do that quite yeah, effectively. you absolutely did. So Natalie has, is given an ill-fated boyfriend called Francois, played by yeah. Nigel Williams. How did you feel about that development? Well, it was interesting because Victoria Rutellis cast him. Mm. I was told I was having him. I didn't surprise me because she's a pretty girl, Natalie, and you'd think, well, you know, she's bound to have a boyfriend at some point. And um, and they didn't do a terrible thing of making me fall in love with an evader, which would have been highly, well, probably improbable, knowing yeah. her character and also overly dramatic. So he was brought in, and um, it was odd because <laughs> the very first time I met Nigel was on film with Victor's again, and um, we had to do this very passionate kiss as I, I was meeting him in a barn, I think. Yes, yeah. And that was a bit odd to do that without even hardly saying hello. Oh, You've been arrested! Police are everywhere. Along the railway, the, the road junction. Oh, Did you get through to him? In the end. Yeah. And then another very odd thing happened that, um, as you know, Francois is killed. Uh, he's shot on the railway platform. Yeah, yeah. And we were filming my reactions to it. 
um, late, quite late into the day. I can't remember the. I can't remember the director. It might have been Andrew Morgan, but I don't think it was. No, it was and, um, um, Roger Jenkins. Roger Jenkins, indeed. And then he said to me, before I'd done my close-up reaction, oh, we're going to cut now and you can pick up in the morning. And I thought, what? <laughs> First thing in the morning, you're asking me to replay, reheal all this. So... Yes, I had to do that. So first thing in the morning, I had to then create this trauma of seeing this man-boy I love, because he was really a boy more than a man in yes. many ways, Francois's character. And I had to recreate in big close-up my reaction to him um, dying and then getting, I think, into the into the van with a lovely man. And you all know who this is. And he was a very established actor from back in the 40s and 50s. Was that Duncan, was the Duncan Lamont, was it? Absolutely yeah. right, absolutely right, Andy. And he drove me away and I had to have that reaction as well. But all after the event, I mean, Nigel was nowhere to be seen on that morning. And, and it was, you know, and that's the extraordinary thing about having to do these things in this way. Um, and as to how I felt about having a boyfriend, it didn't surprise me. And I yeah. think from memory, we have little moments where we just, I'm very tender with him. This is in other episodes and obviously, you know, where he comes home or or I have a playful moment with him, which again, I tried to, with, with an underplayed, under, underwritten script about our relationship, I tried to imbue it with, you know, I tried to make him be the object of my desire. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? I do. I tried totally. to find moments to do that, little moments of tenderness within the script to make it real. One episode, Lucky Piece, is almost like a Brussels travelogue as you're followed all around the city. Um, do you remember filming that? And how well did you get to know Brussels? Well, I do. And I'll tell you a little short anecdote, if I can keep it short. When yeah. I watched it again, uh, it was on recently. You know, they repeated it on drama. And I, I just got up every Saturday morning at 8.15 or whatever it was and watched the three hours, I think it was. And when that episode came up, I just wept, Andy. I just cried. It's because I just said, oh, my God, this was the irony. She looked so free, even though she was in a terrible situation of war and danger, imminent danger daily. There was something about the way she traveled through those streets of Brussels with such pride and purpose and courage. And I just I just wept because I thought, gosh, she was an extraordinary young woman. Yeah. And it was very painful to watch it. And um, sorry, I'm going to go again. Hang on. It was painful to watch, but also beautiful, beautiful to see my beloved Brussels because I love it very, very deeply, dearly. And I I haven't been there for 10 years, but as soon as all this crap is finished, if it ever does, I want to get on the Eurostar and go back because I miss Brussels greatly. So it was a beautiful episode, and I thought it worked Almost, you know, it worked as an episode and it's completely independently of the yeah. series in some ways. It was yeah. completely rounded. Do you agree? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. You know, Bradley was super and the, and the man that followed me and the, and the response of the Candide um, cast, you know, to what had happened. It just was an episode. You could pluck it out and show it as an episode in its own right, yeah. I felt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it was a lovely, and again, that was Victor's, and he will keep coming back into the conversation. <laughs> there was no need for you to be present. There was every need. People sometimes talk under anaesthetic. You can't stay here any longer. Why not? This is a convent. It's not possible. Look, if you don't trust us, you can leave any time you want. 
Our concern is for the pilot, not your sort. You are an insufferable nuisance. And from now on, if you want our help, you will do as you are told. The only help I need from you now is a message from your radio man. When I get it, I'll say goodbye to you. Good. I'll take you to the safe house. Stephen Yardley. Um, yes. Another new regular, Max the Forger. What are your memories of him? Well, Stephen, um, uh, Stephen is cheeky. So Stephen, um, I, I think, again, Max, rather like Natalie, and, and Stephen was obviously, when he accepted the role, was a much more established actor than I was and had done much more. I think he was underwritten, particularly yeah. at the beginning. I think yeah. he was frustrated, Stephen. I mean, I'm speaking for him, and I don't yeah. know that that to be the truth. But So he would, he'd be cheeky. He'd be, you know, playing up a little bit, you know, covertly. Um, and um, he was very good with the girls. I mean, and he looked after Angie and I, again, in that sort of metaphorical way of having the arm around metaphorically, and we knew we could go to him if we were feeling blue or whatever. And he, his presence was very positive in the series. He was funny, cheeky, um, but I felt, again, that he was frustrated because I felt the part was underwritten. And it did come into its own a bit, but probably not as much as and then I worked with Stephen again in Blood Money. Of course, yes. Um, um, quite, not that long after, about a year or two later, and Stephen yeah. had a lot more to do as one of the terrorists, and I was one of the German, rather Meinhof-type terrorists in that. And he had a lot more to do, and he was much more settled, I think, then as an actor, because uh-huh. he was given a, a greater role. You know? yeah. So yeah, he yeah. was positive, and he was funny. <laughs> so I think you've already alluded to this, but um, did you enjoy all the location filming you got to do? Probably more than any other actor. Yes, I did. Yes, I mean, I have to say that. And I think there was a little bit of green-eyed from Angie. And she wouldn't mean it badly for me, because obviously that was my character. And she was very much based in the Candide. But she said, you always get to go and do all the filming. <laughs> but I mean, I had to, because that was such an authentic part of who this young girl was. She had no ties. She was yeah. a free spirit. And he could, you know, Albert and the others could take her, push her anywhere. And she could go and do it and do it well. And I did enjoy the location. I can't remember off, hand, off the top of my head any negative at all in the filming experience um it was it was dynamic it was organic it was um fast but that you had to do that because money is time and time is money and so on so i think i was she was probably at her best when she was filming i would guess yeah that was Mm -hmm. what i'd say Yeah, yeah yeah So during the second series, Natalie and Monique enjoy an increasingly good rapport, which I understand yeah. is the same behind uh, the scenes. Yeah. So, yeah, if you could just comment on your relationship, your friendship with Angela during the series. Well, with Angie and I, you know, we did Secret Army 43 years ago, was it, Andy, the first one? And we still talk on the telephone and email throughout the year. I saw her fairly recently. Um I didn't have any friendship with her in series one. She was very closely bonded with Jan. And, uh, and you know, three is a crowd, and we were the only three women, pretty much. And um, unfortunately, I didn't really get included in their friendship. Um, but that was okay. You just get on with it. And I was very close to Chris, as I said. So our relationship didn't really um, develop until series two. And then, because we were the main two and doing the same the scenes pretty much together that was when it it really 
we were able to be friends and we 40 odd years we are still friends which is lovely which doesn't always happen you know even in with actors you know actors are quite flighty and um, they don't always stay constant but we have stayed constant over all these years yeah <laughs> oh to what to liberation I can't believe it. That will all be over so soon. You know, it's going to be the hardest part from now on. Not daring to show a sign on your face, in your eyes. How much do you think Reinhardt knows? I don't know. On the face of it, he could have been offering genuine protection, but I think he was just testing me. So far, it's been all guesswork. Now, he wants positive proof. We've always managed to slip the men tailing us as far as we know. Well, that'll just make him more suspicious. It's only the guilty who slip their tails. The innocent don't have to. But this morning when I went down to the dairy, I swear there were no tails at all. Then we've got the men now. Or oh, they found someone less clumsy. Mm. We mustn't relax. Not for a moment. I know. And I think that rapport between the characters is important in the series. Was that something that just you felt came naturally or was it scripted or I guess it's a combination? Um, I didn't, again, I have to say, and I know John Brayson is no longer with us, so he won't be hearing or reading this, but um, I don't think John, as script editor, exploited Natalie and Monique fully enough. I can say this now all the years later, the time you just get on with it, but I don't feel it was fully exploited. There was a real friendship and tenderness and concern and care between those two women. And women really were the ones who, who in some senses were the backbone of the, of the work and, um, and also had the, and in those days, the feminine, if you like, quality of care, nurture, but courage, all the things that are the best things about women. And I felt we were, in a sense, it's oddly, Andy, I felt we were kept apart rather than brought together. So if we did come across as a close relationship, again, it was to do with the quality of our playing rather than the quality of the script. Do you understand that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad if you say it did come across as a, as a good friendship because um, that, that was in spite of there being so many other things that John Grayson had to focus on, all the other characters, the main plot of that week's story, um, so we did it in little snippets, you know. And again, and you have to say this, we never had what I would say a normal conversation. <laughs> you want a cigarette? Are you tired? I'm tired. Gosh, this is a drag always. You know, <laughs> yes. none of that went on. It was yeah. all heightened. Yeah, yeah. Heightened. Yeah. I wondered um, whether you had any favourite costumes in the series. No, the thing I loved most was my navy blue Mac. Okay. I think I had a navy blue Mac, did I? I, I don't recall it. Oh, I'm then, sure I did. But, you know, Cootie yeah. Jobby, a long thingy. Didn't I have some kind of Mac? I thought yeah. it was navy blue. Um, you I, vari- I, I think I you have various it. long coats, I think, during it. I think, well, if I had one, it was the navy one. And I also took away only one thing from the series, which was my lovely grey soft leather shoes. They were quite high, and I never wear heels. But I wore them for quite a few years. They were lovely. They just made my legs look nice. Do you know something? I'll tell you this. In series two, Lucky Piece, I'm coming up some stairs in a, a studio. It's a studio shot. And I'm coming up some stairs on a, in a, an area where there's a uh, Bradley is there with an airman and another airman. And I've turned up and I've been told there's something going on. And I'm coming up a loft, a loft in a yes. shed or something. 
and you only see my ankles and my le- and I thought, gosh, actually, <laughs> those are quite nice ankles. Those are quite nice legs because I don't think of my legs in those terms at all. I'm quite, I've got very kind of functional legs, and I don't think of them in as yeah. being beautiful. And I thought, gosh, actually, and that was Victor's retellers, and and I thought, gosh, my legs look quite nice. And then he grasps them, he takes hold of them, and I fall to yes. the ground. Um, and I had think I had those shoes on at the time. I think I did. Uh-huh. Oh, I yeah. had a lovely yellow dress I liked. Yeah. A really pretty yellow dress. It was very soft and used to swirl around my thighs and the top of my knees. That was a pretty dress, I remember. And my hat. So I did like my hats. Yeah, lots of hats. Never worn a hat before or since, Andy. Oh, really? Right. Okay. So did you ever... I wondered whether you ever met or read about the Real Resistance Women on which your characters and others were, were based. And and, no. the, and a sub-question, could you have been as brave as them, do you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say yes to the second question. I like to think I am brave. I mean, not now at this age and stage of my life, no. Yeah. But certainly in my 20s, 30s and 40s, I feel I could have been as brave. And I would have done it for, for what I... I would have done it for a cause I believed in, for sure. I never... I saw some pictures of very dark-looking women that I suppose were more based on Angie and Jan's characters... Um, I never read anything. It was all going on in my imagination. So I'm not a method actress, really, in that way. I'm an imaginative actress, if you get the difference. So I could have read loads of stuff, but I don't think it would have made my performance any better or any worse. I think I just did it all through sense instinct. I think Vic Rotellis, in a in a, a DVD that I think you sent me, he alludes to me being... I don't know if he calls me something, not hit and miss. He once said to me, you're either brilliant or dreadful. Which oh, wow. I was, which I was rather sad about because I didn't really care if I was brilliant, but I really cared that I, was, I might be dreadful. And I thought he was a bit cruel. But then I was thinking, gosh, when was I dreadful? When was I dreadful? <laughs> um, so, yes, I think that I did everything imaginatively. So I know I didn't do any research, but I had a strong instinct for the period and the women. So it was more to do with, I don't know, past life maybe yeah. <laughs> who knows yeah so moving into the third series secret army really feels like it's now firing on all cylinders did you feel that as well as you were recording and filming it no you need a bit of sweet you know that you're coming close to the end of the war Andy, literally in, in that you're doing it i think you're in 1944 at this point so i knew that it was coming to an end and although you don't think that on a moment by moment basis you do know this is the end of a three-year working job and and um i wasn't aware of it firing on all cylinders to, to quote you or not again i have to say i just got on with things i never thought in terms of fame or fortune or and i always have shied away from any kind of public appearances or anything like that so it wasn't i didn't go this is feathering my cap i rather feared because in the 70s it was very much if you were in a long time series it would maybe be years before you'd be employed again in television that's what they told you so it was bittersweet i i knew i was glad it was going on and i knew that we had 14 million viewers 14 million on a Saturday, because it was then put up to Saturday from a Wednesday. And I thought that was good, but I never thought, oh, this is a real, this is going to be the making of me, because I just thought, oh, Christ, when this will finish, not only will I miss it, but will I work again? That's what actors always think, or this kind of actor anyway. You just never know. 
I'm, I'm linked to this is a comment that everyone, fans of the show and people who are, you know, they've watched it, maybe them, they, they call themselves fans, but everyone agrees that Secret Army gets better year on year. And it's very unusual for a series to keep doing that because usually they start with a bang or they don't start quite right and they get better, but then they they tail off. But this one, just it, just the growth of it just continues. So series three is absolutely the best series. And I just, it's very unusual. And I wonder why that is. I think it because it took a it took a very significant twist. You you got used to people, and then those people went away, or went away in, in a different way, or came in in a different way. So we lost Bernie into prison, and then we got Paul back in because Bernard had left, and no one thought that a woman could run the line. Yes, that wasn't without tension. I have to tell you, in rehearsals, yeah. there was quite a lot of tension about that. I mean, Angie wasn't happy, but I think Paul coming back in as Major Bradley. Um, uh, increased a kind of a sense of, of, of something. I mean, I know for Natalie, it was a particularly kind of heightened, romantic, erotic quality, I suppose. And I think because it was, we lost people, we gained people. We had more of Hazel, who became of this vulnerable woman who was obviously putting her life, you know, so things did develop quite interestingly, particularly amongst the women. Yes. I have to say. Because yeah. although Angie wasn't running the line exclusively by herself, she had Bradley there. She, Monique's character was very much featured as, as as being, you know, having this the dilemma of what she was facing, and having to stay true to Bernard's character's desires and needs, and also having to find her own. So I think it was interesting, and I think also the audience must have thought, "God, we are coming to the end of the war. How is this going to resolve?" Do you know what I mean, Andy? Yeah, absolutely. But I think yeah. you, you were keeping audiences quite hooked because of that. And I think it was definitely, I agree with you, that it's definitely the best of the three series, yeah. He was under orders to build a contingency fund. There must be another safe. He was also under orders to build the Candide as a smart restaurant, a listening post among the Germans. Now that has cost a lot of money. An hour's delay can put you all in Dachau. Show me. So I was talking with Angela um, earlier in the week about how Secret Army wasn't just straightforward goodies versus baddies, um, excellent complex characterization. Um, and although we've touched on Natalie being underwritten, and um, there was times when she's incredibly kind and other times very hard, having to make expedient decisions. How hard was that to play that range? Not hard at all. Not hard at all. I, I would say one thing, and it's something that my students that I teach now uh, find out about me quite quickly is I have a very wide emotional range myself as a human being. <laughs> so um, I, there's, a, there's no emotional state that frightens me or unnerves me or makes me think I can't look at this or face this. I'm very brave emotionally So as a woman. So playing a character like Natalie, who, who had qu- quite a wide range of emotions within the series is um, it wasn't hard to play. It, it came. She became totally natural to me as, as all the months went on. And, and I think as an actress, if you were to analyse my role as an actress, technically, I probably was at my best in series three, although I think I, was at, I had some very authentic moments, beautiful, authentic, steer moments in series one. But yeah. I was a less polished, accomplished actress. I think that's what Victor's alluded to when he was talking about me in his um, video letter, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't hard. No, not at all. Yeah. So towards the end of the series, Natalie and Alan are in the thick of the action. There's the advancing British on the Germans, and you you're yes. attacking with guns. How was that to film? 
Well, my one abiding memory, and, I, and I'm and i very upset with Michael Brandt when I think about it, is that they gave me this bloody great da-da-da-da-da to use, and I don't know what kind of gun you call that, but one of those ones that goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, what is it? It's, um, is it a stand a, gun? A, a or continuous... A what? No, I was wondering if it was a stand well, it's gun. Well, it's a gun that's, that, that is repeating, repeating, repeating. Yeah. So when you fire it, it doesn't yeah. just do one bullet, that's it. It goes on and on. And what they didn't tell me, and I'm sure they knew is that it would could potentially deafen me and that it would knock me, you know, sideways. Yeah. And that's exactly what it did. They gave me no earplugs to start with. Oh. So I was given this gun, given a little bit scant um, instruction by somebody, by the arms officer on the set, on the set about how to use it, how to look authentic using it. And I did it. And the first time I did it, I literally fell over onto my side because the impact was so vibrated through my whole being. I couldn't control the gun or the no- and I just fell to the side. And then they suddenly said, oh, she better have some earplugs. I thought, bloody right, she better have some earplugs. <laughs> but I'm, honestly, I was, you know, not particularly happy with that because it was quite shocking and potentially dangerous. So I did have my earplugs and then there's quite a strong scene of me using this. I remember and I've got a pink top on in series three yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm aiming this gun at a at a German or at someone yeah. German, I imagine. And yes, and so therefore it was more comfortable. It was okay. I mean, I didn't go, yay, I'm looking forward to using guns. I don't like violence and I hate war and I don't like guns. But but it was necessary. I was just a bit upset that they hadn't thought to take better care of my ears at the time. <laughs> That's my memory. Yeah. Michael Bryant reflecting on his... Um career as a director was that he often said he said um, that he he didn't think enough about the actors and he was more interested in, in the shots and what he could get on the camera um, so by his own admission he he recognized failings there I think <laughs> yes yes and I think he's not alone in that and we were very much left to our own devices you know I'm sure I would have got a note from the top of the from the studio um where Jerry used to sit, you know, had I been completely off kilter in my in my portrayal, but we never really got any any direction. We only got direction in terms of how it looked as a scenario, how it looked as a mise en scène, how it looked as a shot, not as you know the depth of our character work. Never. I don't so, remember getting a day's direction from anybody. Wow. And that's the truth. Yeah. I really don't, and yeah. that's extraordinary. I remember being told, go up that mountain, don't stop, keep on going, <laughs> or something. You know, it doesn't matter if you fall down, it'll be good, you know, keep on going. I remember that sort of direction, but never, well, we don't know, we think she should be a little bit more something here. Yeah. Never, no, no. No, right. Anyway, no. So I think you've already <laughs> perhaps answered this next one, but let's see. How did you feel about the fact that the series was coming to an end? You've, you've, after 40 episodes... You know me, so... Andy, and I'm not going to be able to talk about this very comfortably. Oh, okay. I'm ridiculous, 40 years on. Um, I did, there were 42 episodes, and I think yeah. I did about 40, yeah. maybe 39. It's it, it, very painful, very painful because you're young and you've given so much of yourself and you don't know if you'll ever do a part like this again that, that you can love so well. So it was painful, it was difficult. I'm sure I went into some kind of, um, I don't know, some sort of strange thing when I finished, but I just met my daughter's father, who was a Greek Cypriot. I met him in a London nightclub, and I met him literally um, two, three weeks before the end. So in a good way, that took my mind off the reality of what had happened. 
that it was over. And I focused more attention on a love affair. And then that later produced my daughter. And so I suppose I had, I was diverted from the reality of just thinking, God, this is all finished. But it was painful for sure, yeah. Yeah. All my sorrows desert me. You said something earlier in the interview which really interests me. You said you feel like you were destined to pay Natalie. So does that relate to that, that loss, that sense of loss, because it, it became such an important part for you? I think so. But, you know, it's a funny thing about being an actor, Andy. You, being an actor is a fantasy. That's the first thing. I mean, no matter how you, you know, it doesn't matter how um, extraordinary the quality of the writing is or the production or the direction or the outcome it is a fantastical world that you inhabit for the period of time in which you're playing a role so you always know that there's going to be an end to this and you and for me i gave it my all and i never really held back with her i mean i had to hold back technically at points obviously if i would have overplayed her and things but you always know that it's going to come to an end even if you know it's a nine-month contract there's always a sense yeah. as an actor that this is going to end and I do feel, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I do feel I was destined to play her as far as there is a destiny in, in being an actor. I, I do feel there was, I just think, and I'm very struck by, by Jerry Glaster, there was something on that moment when he first met me that I almost knew that he saw something in me just in that moment of saying hello that would take me to her, if you yeah. see yes. what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Huh. Well, I think I've probably already shared with you before, but Natalie was the reason I watched <laughs> when I was... No, you a... have never told me that, uh, Mr. Andy yes. <laughs> No, 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 you have never told me that. I didn't know that. Well, I don't, I don't know what it was about. Do you know, I will tell you something which was really dear, and I never blow my own trumpet. You've known me enough years to know that yeah. I don't. But I was yeah. a, there was a, a, a journalist in the Daily Mail going back now a few years or quite a few years quite yeah. a few years and he was talking about uppers and downers in television uh-huh. and he said that secret army should be a downer but it remains an upper because of the shimmering beauty of of the blonde of of the of juliet hammond playing the blonde natalie wasn't uh-huh. that lovely yeah I've never oh, heard it. anyone refer to myself as having shimmering beauty. <laughs> I just thought it was, and oddly, it stuck in my mind because I thought, you're right. She has got a shimmering beauty. She yeah. has, hasn't she? Yeah, When absolutely. you see her crossing the Grande Place, or there's something about her. And I think her shimmering beauty wasn't just about her look. It was no. to do with her person. Yeah. She had a quality that shimmered. You couldn't quite place her. 
she was there one minute, but you wouldn't be surprised if she hadn't come back, that she'd gone somewhere. That's what I loved about Natalie, that she was mysterious. Do you think she was mysterious? Definitely. But yes. I think, above all, I think it's about integrity and commitment in yes. what I read in it. But I just, I just remember sitting there as a, whatever, how old I was, I was watching the repeats, um, and just sitting there, like waiting for your name to come up. <laughs> I'd be like, Juliet Hammond Hill, there she is. <laughs> That's my one. <laughs> oh, no, I, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. And no, I, she, I did get a lot of fan mail, strange fan mail, I have to say. <laughs> did you? But yeah. I did get a lot, and that was interesting. And I never, never not answered it. But they were peculiar, some of the people, I have to say. They were a bit unsettling. <laughs> now, now, we did briefly share, before we just get back into the interview, that um, when I studied at Exeter, and I used to give in my essays in the, in, um, the Queen's Building, and I know the Queen's Building. Well, I know exactly because we, we, I think you probably forgot we had this conversation very briefly. We discovered that um, I was actually handing in my essays in the office that you worked in and thinking, oh. how do I know this person? <laughs> what, you didn't realise it was me? No, no. Well, I guess it was ten years later. But oh then when I made, the, I made the connection when we, we did the recordings, you know, in, in London. Because I don't think I looked that different. No, Exactly. But no, no, because it was only 89 when I went to work in Exeter, so yeah. that was only 10 years, and I think I looked pretty similar. Oh, yeah. my God. Because I was there in 1990, yeah. Yes. Yeah. What were yeah. you studying? I was studying theology and classics. Oh, my God! <laughs> but that's exactly where I was placed. I know, I know, you were there, and it wasn't until I talked to you in, <laughs> in London I that I realised... You could have seen me daily, Andy. I, was I, I there think daily. I did, but I just never made the connection. It's just bizarre. How funny. Well, yeah. you'd probably think, well, what's Natalie doing in Well, I in didn't the, even make building. that connection. I just thought, oh, I, that, she's familiar and I don't understand why. <laughs> And, and, you know, because I gave up acting in 89 because of my daughter, and then we moved right. to the, you know, the West Country, Uaruar, thinking that would be the answer to everything. Of course it wasn't, it never is. Yeah. And so I did go to work at the university. Yes, how yeah, peculiar. Yeah. Whoa. Isn't. Anyway, back to my questions. Um, yes. Very unprofessional of me then. <laughs> Do you have any memories of corpsing on the series? Yes, I was a terrible corpser. <laughs> Angie, now, Angie and I were the worst corpsers. But Angie was more, no, she wasn't. I'm not going to lie. She wasn't actually that controlled. I have to say she did corpse badly. In fact, she corpsed so badly one time that her tray that she was carrying, she was always carrying trays, was shaking. And one time, one very quick time, I'll tell you, she was in, I think, series two. I was dressed as a nurse. She was in hospital and she'd been wounded and I'd gone to get her out. And it was in the studio, and I knew Jerry was upstairs and the director and everything, and I, but I don't know what was the matter with me, and I had to rush in. And I think I just got a bit fed up of rushing in all the time and saying, <laughs> you know, I've got to get out. Da, 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 da. That's what I spent my life doing as Natalie. And then I rushed in, and something about her face, and I just started to laugh. And I was laughing so much that I actually ended up burying my head in her lap on the bed. Anyway, this happened repeatedly, and Jerry Glaster came down, and that wasn't good news. And I knew I could get away with a certain amount with Jerry, but not a lot. And he said, you know, what's going on? What You've got to get control of this. I said, I can't, Jerry. I can't. I can't get control of this. And I was still laughing. I said, I, will, I promise I will try. Angie's eyes are filling with tears, but no one's focusing on her. <laughs> she's laughing so much because she's in the bed being a goody two-shoes, and I've got all the action to do. 
anyway, I must have got through it because the episode obviously got filmed, got shot. But um, oh my God, that was that was the worst one. That was probably the worst one. Others tended to happen in rehearsals, and sometimes Bernie'd get really angry with Angie and I and thought we were just petty, childish, silly women. And sometimes, well, I I had to leave the room. I had to leave the room and then she just got on with doing it and then she got over it because she's a professional. And we may have had a few on filming sometimes, but, you know, we were aware that filming was money, so we couldn't muck around. We couldn't. Studio, you could give in to it a bit. Yeah. And rehearsals, you could yeah. give in to it as much as other actors would let you give in to it. Yeah. Angie was remembering to me the other day the um, the wedding scene when, in which you, you had, were in trouble Her for wedding? Her wedding? Her wedding, yes. <laughs> in the church? In the church, yes. Because yeah. I was, had to cry in that scene. So if we'd done corpsing, then I was very professional because I then turned on the tears, which they always put the camera on me for tears. Yeah. I think I yeah. cried when she went up the aisle or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, she said we laughed. Yeah, yes. she, she was naughty. She is naughty. She's still naughty. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, I know that. We, we, yeah, exactly, you know. And so, yes, if there was any corpsing, to be honest with you, I don't remember any visiting actors corpsing. Bernard never corpsed. Clifford never corpsed. No, Stephen Yardley might have done borderline, but I was the worst with Angela. Yeah, definitely. I wonder whether you have a favourite episode or moment from the entire thing. Oh, I don't know. Um, do I have a favourite episode or moment? Um, oh. Mm. No, although I have to say that, and I'm going back again to Lucky Peace, I liked working with Paul Shelley, yeah. who played Bradley. Um, we worked well together. We had a good chemistry, I think, on screen, didn't we? Definitely, yes. So I was very glad when he came back, because I knew that it would probably add an extra frisson to her life. I liked very much filming anything in Brussels Centre or anything in Brussels itself, I suppose. I love that city. And yeah. I think one of my favourite episodes, probably, uh, as an entirety, is Lucky Peace, episode three, yeah. I think it was, yeah, yeah. in yeah, series yeah. two. It had a lot for her. It showed a lot of her quality. Mm-hmm. And there's a marvellous moment, and I remember this, is that when Bradley is telling, I'm in foreground in the studio, Bernie's upstage of me and Bradley's opposite, um, Bernard Albert, and then I'm not speaking at all, but my chest is rising up and down with the, with the fear of what Bradley is talking about. He's talking about how I've been tailed by a Gestapo, and I thought, God, that's good acting. I yeah. thought at the time, I saw it not that long ago, actually, yeah. that particular, and I thought, gosh, that's really, that's good the way you're not speaking, but you're totally involved in what um, Bradley is saying. So I thought, for me, Lucky Peace helped me develop as an actor on screen I think I would say yeah that makes sense I don't know if you like that episode Andy but oh yes very much yes that's what I would say and that was Vic Vitellis I'm sure it was Vic wasn't it yes it was I think I have to say this is going to come up again now Vic's name he is the director it was a bit of a love-hate relationship the love the hate wasn't on my part and it wasn't on his but he was very difficult with me he was quite challenging yeah. But I did enjoy him as a director, and uh, I think he was my favourite director in terms of what what he brought out of Natalie. Yeah. Well, I think of the directors, he was. I think he was the only one who was actually from mainland Europe and actually yes. had that sort of sense that perhaps translated. 
Absolutely, categorically. And he came from Latvia, which was obviously, yeah. as you know, a, a very highly deprived and challenged um, part of the world in terms of not Nazi um, uh, action and, and, and um, occupation and so on. So he had that raw simpatico with, with, with the period. So in mm. sense, that in, as I was destined to play her, I think Victor's was destined to be involved in the show for sure. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question I don't want to ask and you probably don't want to answer, which is about um, how did you react to a low, a low coming along and parodying Secret Army? I think it's absolutely disgusting. And, I, and to be honest, I, and I never spoke with anyone about it, I, I don't know what the BBC thought they were doing. If they really wanted to undercut Jerry's achievements or if they wanted to be spiteful or if they wanted to soil on their own success, I have no idea why they commissioned that within the lifetime of Secret Army almost. Yeah. And I thought it was disgusting, and I've never watched an episode, though I'm very aware that it's got a, a strong following, and it went into the West End, even my brother went to see it, and I I was appalled, I'm still appalled, and it undercut the integrity of, of our work, and, yeah. and Jerry's devotion, Jerry's yeah. devotion to the BBC and to, and to the show, and I was hurt for Jerry, because yeah. I thought it was disgustingly disrespectful. Yeah. Particularly as it's the same organisation, you know, it's the same TV company. It's not, it's not like someone else doing it. It's, yeah. And they didn't uh, wait 20 years, as you know, Andy. Did no, they, what did exactly. they wait? Two years? Three years? Nothing. Nothing. But you know another interesting thing about that? They didn't have a facsimile of Natalie in it. No. They had a girl in with a silly accent in a dark beret and a dark curly hair saying yeah. something occasionally. Yeah. But they never had, because they couldn't, I'm going to say this, they couldn't take the piss out of Natalie. They couldn't. They couldn't. Because how would you do that? I don't think you could with her. Yeah. I yeah. just think it was disgusting and cheap. And I, I know it's had success. And sadly, it goes on having success or interest. And, um, but it hurt all of us. But it mostly, I'm hurt for Jerry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you feel about looking back on Secret Army today? It's obviously well, emotional. Obviously, and, as you can hear in yeah. my voice, Andy, I'm full of verve and uh, enthusiasm and passion about it. Yeah, I feel the same about it as I've always felt about it. I thought, you know, it had its flaws, it had its qualities, it had its true devotion and commitment from everybody who worked on it, as probably is always the case with most um, shows, particularly at the BBC. I think it's, it's, has it stood the test of time? I don't know. Do would I wince sometimes at some of the things? Possibly I would, even my own thing. But um, I think it's it's got quality and it does. You know, something I think it leaves it leaves something about the war that will one day no one will know about the war. But if they watch Secret Army, do you agree with me that they would find out about that war through watching Secret Army? Absolutely. I mean, I think my education about the resistance and about the Belgian resistance, particularly and yeah, and also the uh, more broadly just the fact about the complexity of war and the lack of winners and all of that sort of humanity aspect of the series, yeah. I feel I got through watching it. And there were no heroes, not really. Yeah. And no heroines, not really. I mean, we were brave, but, you know, we were flawed and uh, we took risks. And and I think if, you know, if a young student knew nothing but World War II, if everything had been wiped and they watched that series, they would understand a lot and know a lot, and learn a lot. Don't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm proud, proud, proud of having, you know, been involved in it, and I wish, 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 really wish they had never made that 
ghastly comedy series. So my, my final question is, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this is because um, there was lots of people on Twitter talking about Secret Army and I was thinking, well, I've got this podcast, I'm definitely going to be doing Secret Army for letter S in our journey through the A to Z of TV. Um, why do you think Secret Army is still attracting new fans? Well, I didn't know it. I didn't know it was. I didn't. What is it? How, uh, what, um, yes, in very what much form so. Is it? Um, well, from, from what I can see, it's just on social media, people talking about it and seeing it for the first time and thinking, "Wow!" So this where do they see it? On um, either on DVD or oh. I think it. Uh, you know, repeats on various channels. I'm not sure whether it's available streaming anywhere, but then people can also download episodes illegally over the internet, and you know. Yeah. I so suppose it's... what I said, I alluded to earlier, Andy. I think it has a it has a combination of the the rea- It's based on real events and real life and real people. I think it has a quality of drama, of tragedy, actually, of sadness, of of a certain amount of triumph, of romance, of passion. Even little things between, you know, like Angie had an extraordinary episode with a young actor whose name I'm not going to remember. And she had, there's a marvellous scene of her on a motorbike where she's, her eyes are filling oh, with tears. Yes. Um, and I Bernard thought... had come to pick her up or something. Right. And I think they'd had a liaison, hadn't they? Yeah, and Bernard things goes like to... Things like that. Bernard goes Do you remember what that was? Um, yes, the episode's called The Question of Loyalty. But yes. I can't. I can't remember what the actor, who the actor is. I can't yeah. remember him. Um, Arundel Clive. Clive, Clive Arundel. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> just come to me, and I didn't meet him. I never met him. I didn't know him. But I, those little moments, you know, and there was a lo- lovely moment, and I think this was Michael actually, Bryant, where I, I'm standing on a platform with one of, I think he's an Australian airman, and he just touches a lock of my hair, and asks me if I'm all right or something, and those little moments. I rebuff him, of course, and and those little moments just make, I think they make it. And moments between um, Hazel and Clifford, you know, they make make it special, I think. They really do. And I think those little moments are memorable and they, they take it above the ordinary and the dramatic and the all action and all... Yeah, I think there's quality there, and um, I'm glad. I hope it'll. I hope it will. You know, I hope people will watch it, and hope it stays in the, you know, the public domain for as long as, you know. But you know, go back to the war if you want to know about the Second World War, and you want to know about occupied area of Europe. It's a brilliant series to know about it. Brilliant, and weren't weren't the Brussels people great? You know, the extras and the, oh, you yeah. know, the Brussels actors. Do you remember them, Andy? You know, yeah, just, the, just the scenes of Brussels and all yeah. those lovely extras they'd use and, you know, actors, local actors, they'd do small parts. I mean, just gorgeous. It's the authenticity it lends it, but um, it's, it's the amount of them as well often. It's the amount of extras, which is feels unusual for the BBC of the time. I suppose the period drama, they always did so well, but there's, there's an enormous amount of location filming and, um, and of, yeah, supporting artists in various episodes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the location, going from location into studio, didn't work. Yeah. But nowadays they'd probably they didn't work at all actually. But nowadays they'd probably um, they do it either all on film. They probably do it all on film. They'd have the budget for that. But yeah, sometimes it was a bit. Oh gosh, ooh, don't think that worked. 
but um, you know, and that's me as well. As suddenly I'd be looking quite forlorn out in the street of Brussels, and I'd come into the Candide with bright red cheeks that they'd overmade up my face or something. Do you know what I mean? That was just one small thing. But they didn't always work, those shots from film to studio. I mean, imagine you'd have loved it if it had been all, all on film, that series. Yes, it would have been. But I was very, very grateful and gracious about all the filming that they gave me because it was... And I, I, you know, I, felt, I, I, I felt everything they asked me to do, I did, you know. I did well and I did to the best of my ability and beyond, you know. I, I always felt I was good value, good value for good money. Value. Value for money, yeah. <laughs> That's the headline. Didn't get much money either, I can tell you. But what I did get, I earned. I was good value for money, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's a, a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for going back to Secret Army today. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. I, you can hear me in my voice. I'm so proud. You know, I think it's a wonderful show. <laughs>